All right, how many people would like to study 1 Peter tonight? Okay, all right. Let's open up our Bibles and get started tonight. 1 Peter. I'm just going to do sort of a quick, quick, quick review of last week, and uh, then we'll dive into it tonight. All right? Good to see so many people out again tonight. And again, like I said, next week we'll even have more room in here. So please don't hesitate to invite your friends with you. If, if this Bible study is encouraging you and helping you, getting you excited about being in the Word, then uh, we know there's other people out there that, that want to be a part of this as well. And before we actually get in tonight, let's ask the Lord to help us uh, as we get into the Word tonight. Father, we just thank you so much for the opportunity we once again have to just open up the Bible and just get into it. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing here at Cornerstone Christian Fellowship. Lord, just for the overflow of people that you are just sending our way. And we don't want to send anybody away. We want them to come and we want them to find Jesus. We want them to grow up in Jesus here at this place. So, Lord, give us wisdom. Give us patience. Just continue to just work with us, Lord, and and give us what we need, Lord, to navigate these next few months before we get into the new building. And, Father, we pray for that new building. We pray for the walls. We pray for the situation with the builders, that, Lord, you would just navigate that and work all that out so that, Lord, that would not delay us getting into that building at all. And, Father, we thank you for the ability we had to switch rooms in just one week's time. We thank you for Jeff being so willing to give up this room and to move so that, Lord, we could have more space. And Father, as these folks get in here this week and just, you know, carpet and paint and all that, we pray you would just bless them for their efforts to make this room even more comfortable and more spacious so that more people could come and study the Word of God. Father, that's our heartbeat. We want to excite people about the Word. We want to get people connected to the Bible. And Lord, we believe that this Bible study on Tuesday night is a great way to do it. Bless all those who came out tonight. Lord, give them just special a special something for making the effort to be here tonight. And Father, we'll give you the glory, honor, and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. First Peter, we started last week uh, with verse 13. And the reason we started in chapter 1, verse 13, is because we said that is really the key sort of linchpin verse that everything else in First Peter flows out from. And the reason we started there is because we saw that Peter there is saying to get your minds and get my mind ready for action. And we talked about the fact that what Peter there is saying to us is this, that God is always at work. He is always at work in our lives. He's always at work around us in the lives of other people. God is always at work. And I want you to be encouraged by that tonight. Let's remember something again that we touched on last week. Peter is writing to try to encourage a group of Christians who are under tremendous persecution. They're going through tremendous trials and they're suffering because they are a Christian in the Roman Empire. And so everything that you read in 1 Peter, always keep that in mind. That Peter is writing this tremendous letter of encouragement to a group of people who are under tremendous persecution. And he's saying to these people, don't forget something. Get your minds ready for action. Remember, God is always at work. Even when we don't think He's at work, God is always at work. So be ready to respond when God is working. And it reminded me of that passage in Exodus where God said, I want you to celebrate the Passover before He actually took the children of Israel out of Egypt over the Red Sea. And He says, as you celebrate the Passover tonight... Celebrate it with the staff in your hand and your shoes on your feet. In other words, anticipate what's going to happen. I'm going to set you free, so get ready. I'm working. It's going to happen. Get ready to respond. And God would say the same thing to you and I tonight. I believe every Tuesday that we come in here, God is saying to all of us, I want to do a work in your life tonight. And so be ready to respond to whatever God is speaking to you and I about as we go through 1 Peter. And again, too, the reason I started with verse 13 is because of the word therefore at the beginning of verse 13. And I said that every time you see the word therefore or wherefore in the Bible, as you study the Bible, it simply means that everything before that word was a build-up to that verse. So that all 12 verses leading up to verse 13 
Peter is building an argument of why we need to be ready to respond because God is at work. And throughout those first 12 verses of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter begins to tell us the ways that God is working and how God has worked in the past, how God is working in the present, and why we need to be ready to respond because God is at work. You also remember from last week that we saw there in the first two verses that I've got the entire Godhead behind me. Because in the first two verses of 1 Peter chapter 1, you see the mention of Jesus Christ, then God the Father in verse 2, and the Spirit in verse 2. And again, Peter, to encourage these folks, is saying, I want you to know that the entire Trinity is behind you. The entire Trinity, excuse me, as my notes go here, is supporting you in your day of trial, in your persecution that you are going through. And then notice that Peter begins to talk about the provision of God. The fact that God, because He is there for you, He is providing for you. One of the things that I didn't mention last week that I wanted to go back to this week in verse 2 is that notice the provision of the blood of Jesus Christ. He says that you have been set apart by the Spirit for obedience and for sprinkling with Jesus Christ's blood. And I did mention the fact that the provision of God was the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross of Calvary. Our response then should be a positive response to say yes to, to Jesus. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. There are three times in the Old Testament, and, and Peter is drawing a lot from the Old Testament in First and Second Peter, because his audience is primarily Jewish. So he's keeping his audience in mind, and he's using a lot of Old Testament illustrations and whatnot. And they would understand sprinkling of blood from the Old Testament sacrificial system. And blood was sprinkled for three things. It was sprinkled to establish a new covenant. And through Jesus Christ, the writer of Hebrews says, we've entered into a new covenant. It was also used to ordain priests. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says that we are a chosen generation. We now, through Christ, are a royal priesthood. So that every believer in Jesus Christ is a priest. You know that tonight? That if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, according to the Bible, you are a priest. That simply means that you need no other human being to mediate between you and God. The only mediator you need is the Lord Jesus. And His blood was shed. And now Paul says in Romans 5.1, we now then have access to God through Jesus Christ. And when we have direct access to God, that's exactly what that picture of the priesthood was. You don't need some other human being to go into the presence of God for you. You can go directly there. And then the third thing that the blood was sprinkled for was it was part of a cleansing ceremony. And through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are cleansed and we are kept clean through the blood of Jesus Christ. So there's the provision of the blood. I'm going to just stop in a minute to just open it up if anyone has any comments or questions. You also, though, notice the provision of His grace, verse 2. May grace be yours in full measure. So He's reminding them. And, and then in 1 Peter 5, He tells them that God is the God of all grace. And grace is, is defined in a couple different ways, but in this context, it simply means the power to be able to live as God would have me to live. The power, the enablement, the divine enablement and support that I need. That's why when Paul got that thorn in his flesh, that physical infirmity, and he asked God in 2 Corinthians 12, God, would you please take it away from me? God came back to him and said, no, I'm not going to take that thorn away from you, but my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, I'll give you the grace to deal with it. I'm not going to take it away. In my wisdom, I believe that you're going to be better off by having that thorn in the flesh. But in order to deal with that thorn in the flesh, I'm going to give you all the grace that you need. Then you also notice he says, I'm going to be the God who provides the peace for you. And you also notice in this greeting then that Peter is reaching out to both Gentiles and to Jews. Because that word grace really locks in to the Greeks and to the Romans. That was a, that was a Gentile word, grace, charis in the Greek. But the word peace is a word that's more associated with the Jewish audience. It's the word shalom. When, when Jews would greet each other even today, they would say shalom. And that word peace simply means a tranquility of mind. 
and that through the provision of God, you and I can walk through life not only having the grace to deal with whatever comes into our life, but also having the tranquility of mind. Jesus said it this way in John 14. He says, My peace I give to you. I don't give this kind of peace like the world says that they're going to give you that kind of peace. I'm going to give you my kind of peace that far exceeds any kind of peace of mind or tranquility of mind that the world could give or that you could get through anything of this world. Then you'll notice in verse 3, he also provides a living hope. And we talked a little bit about that last week. And we talked in verse 13 about setting our entire hope in God rather than anything of this earth. Because anytime we set our hope on another human being, that hope can be disappointed. Anytime we set our hope in some kind of human institution, that hope can be dashed and disappointed. Think about how many people several years ago put their hope in the stock market or in, in a certain company or business that they've worked for for years or, again, in another relationship or person, and they've had those hopes dashed and they have, they have become hopeless and they've become discouraged. God is saying to us here that one of the ways that we can rise above that is by not putting our hope in anything on this earth, but by anchoring our hope to God and to Him alone. And God gives us that living hope. Now, I want you to keep your finger there in 1 Peter, and I want you to go back to the book of Hebrews, to chapter 6. And I mentioned this last week, but I did not have you folks turn to it, but it's one of my favorite passages. So just go back through James, and then once you get to James, Hebrews is the next book to your left. And I want to begin in verse 17 of chapter 6 of the book of Hebrews. And here's an encouraging passage for you, dealing with that hope that's an anchor for our soul. The writer of Hebrews says, In the same way, God wanted to demonstrate more clearly to the heirs of the promise that His purpose was unchangeable. And so He intervened with an oath, so that we who have found refuge in Him, in God, may find strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us through two unchangeable things, since it is impossible for God to lie. So notice verse 19. We then have this hope as an anchor for the soul. What encouragement Peter was giving to his audience, because he was saying, guys, God is at work, and God is the God of all resources that we need, even in these tough days in which you're finding yourself. And he's saying God can give you grace, God can give you peace, and God is giving you a living hope, a hope that truly is an anchor for your soul. And here's the reason why it is an anchor. And here's the reason why biblical hope, as I mentioned last week, is so much different than the way we use the word hope in English. Because when we use the word hope in English, we're saying I wish something to happen, but I'm not sure. When the Bible uses the word hope, that word in the original language means I am absolutely confident. Well, how can I be absolutely confident about something? For what the writer of Hebrews says, number one, God is never going to change his mind about what he's said or done. And secondly, God cannot lie. Literally, it says the unliable God. So, it's saying the reason we can put our hope in God and we can have that stability in our life that we can't get anywhere else is because, let's face it, People change their mind. They even may change their mind about you and me or whatever. And Jesus even demonstrated that. The fickleness of people. The week before he was crucified, he was going through the streets and they were saying, Hail the King of the Jews, Hosanna, Hosanna. The palm branches were laid at his feet and they were worshiping him. And those very same people, most of them a week later, were saying, Crucify him, crucify him. It just shows how thick. One day they're for you, the next day they're against you. So you don't know. People can change. Things on this earth can change. Situations at work can change. Everything can change. Nothing is stable on earth. But if we set our anchor and our hope in God, we are setting our hope in someone who's not going to change his mind about you. He, he's not going to come to me next week and go, well, Jeff, I know what I said about saving you through the blood of my son, Jesus Christ, but I've changed my mind. I'm backing out of that deal. God's never going to do that. That's what the writer... He, that's why we can have a hope that is sure. Because God's never going to change His mind about you. 
God has set His love upon you and you can go to the bank, as we say, on that. You can be sure of that because God's never going to get to a point where He changes His mind about what He said or about what He's done or what He will do. And God can't lie. So every promise, and that's why it's so important that we study the Bible, that we get into these promises and we find out what the promises of God are because we can claim those promises and we can put our hope on those promises because we know those promises will never change. When God says in Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you. I will never turn my back on you. You can, you can say thank you and you can just, because you know it's never going to happen. God will never turn His back on you. Because why? Because He can't lie. And that's what He said. So there's where our hope is. That's why the writer of Hebrews says we have such an anchor. We have such living, living hope. Alright, let's go back to 1 Peter and I'm going to just stop in just a second. I want to get to verse 4. And just introduce it. Now as these folks that Peter was writing to, was going through tremendous persecution. Part of that persecution is they were losing a lot as far as earthly, material, temporal goods. A lot of them maybe lost their homes, their, their jobs, the things that they'd accumulated over the years. And because of their stand for Christ, they lost a lot of, of this world's goods. So one of the ways that Peter wants to come back and encourage them is saying, hey, You may, through your stand for Christ, be losing some things here on earth, but I want to tell you something that should encourage you. If you keep your perspective on the eternal rather than on the temporal, let me tell you something good. Verse 4. We have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that is, into an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and this inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. Peter is saying to these folks, hey, people on earth can take away the things that you've accumulated and the things you've worked for, but I want to tell you something. If you're laying up treasure in heaven and you're investing in eternal things, there's an inheritance up there that's reserved for you and nothing can touch it because God has it reserved. And that word literally means that God is watching over your inheritance and my inheritance. You think anybody's going to mess with God? I don't think so. So he's saying to these people, hey, here's something else that's sure. Yeah, there's things on earth that can change. There's things on earth that can be unstable. You may be uh, the, the person that, you know, made this much one year and now you're making this much, you know, the next year. And all those things can change on earth. But he's saying to these people, but you know what? No matter what's taken away from you or what you lose, you're never going to lose your eternal inheritance. Like, unlike here on earth, it can't be contested. No, no relative can say, oh, that's my inheritance. That's not his inheritance, you know. No, it can't be contested. It's ours. It can't be cheapened. In other words, as it goes through time, you know how sometimes, uh, you know, it's not worth as much as it used to be. No, he's saying it's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. I mean, you can't cheapen it in any way. And we can't squander it. I think, oh, to myself, how many times throughout my life did I have something of value and then didn't take care of it or, or squandered it away? He's saying, no, nope, can't do that either. It's going to be there for all of eternity for you to enjoy. And it's never going to be dated. In other words, you know how some things are cool one year and they're not so cool the next year? Well, whatever God's got cooked up for us is going to be cool for all of eternity. It's not something what Now, God, I really enjoyed that three million years ago, but I'm not enjoying it as much now. It's not going to get like that. Whatever inheritance God is going to give each of us, it's going to be something, Peter says, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And he's saying it's going to last. It's going to be there. You can count on it. You can count on your eternal inheritance as much as you can count on the Word of God. Because he cannot lie and he won't change his mind. And so again, you can begin to see here in 1 Peter how Peter wants to build these folks up and encourage them. They're going through some tough times. But Peter wants the Word of God to come into their life and sort of buoy them up and, and refresh them and strengthen them. And that's why I said last week, 
One of the main goals of this Bible study every week is I know you folks have all worked hard, been through a tough day on every Tuesday, and yet you take time to come in here on Tuesday for an hour or so. I want you to leave here lifted, refreshed, revived, encouraged because you've met with God in the Word of God. And that's what Peter's trying to do. All right. I do this at home, too. You can ask my wife. Yeah. <laughs> Comments, questions? All right. Well, I'm going to move on then. All right. All right. Let's get to this. Notice then in verse 5 that he now says this. He says, not only is our inheritance, verse 4, reserved, but notice that he says in verse 5 something very important, that we are reserved for our inheritance. Because notice he doesn't say in verse 5 that he's referring to the inheritance. Notice it's a personal pronoun, who, by God's power, we now are also protected. And that's the reason then why in verse 6, He says, and this truth then can bring you great joy because we not only know that we have a glorious future, we also know that we are certainly going to make it there. I mean, what good is it if God says, oh, I've got this wonderful inheritance for you and I'm watching over this inheritance and nobody's ever going to touch your inheritance, but you're not going to make it there to enjoy it. No, God says, you and I are protected by the almighty power of God so that we will get there and be able to enjoy the inheritance that God is giving us and has reserved for us and is watching over us. And I love this. And I realize I'm sort of in a Baptist church here, okay? But that word joy literally means to dance. It means that that this truth should be so exciting that you just sort of break out and start dancing and leaping and jumping. No, I know I can't dance, so I'm not going to go there. But that, and I don't know about you, but it's not enough. But there are times in my Christian life where God, either through His Word, through something that He showed me, or a sunset, or whatever, someone coming to know Christ, or whatever, that you just you just you just want to do something. You know, you just can't sit still. I know you find that hard for, to believe with me. I, I understand because I'm you know, really you know, a non-excitable guy. But that's what he's saying. He says, this brings you great joy. What? Knowing that I've got this eternal inheritance that God is watching over and He's going to make sure I get there. So then notice he goes on though. Although, although you may have to suffer... We may not have a lot to rejoice in as far as how things are going on in our life right now, but we can get up every day and say, thank you, God, that you know me, that you love me, that you set your love upon me, that I have a personal relationship with you. And even though my life may stink right now, I know that there's nothing that can separate me from your love. And you're going to carry me through this day. That's what he's talking about there. Yeah, these folks... He's not minimizing the trial. He's not minimizing the trial. But he's saying that you and I can still have great joy, although we may have to suffer, because notice, and we talked a little bit about this last week, that he's always wanting his readers to remind themselves through the Word of God that we've got to keep an eternal perspective. We can't get focused on the here and now. We've got to continue to lift our eyes to the eternal Because he uses the phrase, we could be suffering, but it's for a short time compared to eternity. And he's already talked about this eternal glory. In Romans 8.18, Paul says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present life aren't even going to be worthy to be compared with the glory that we will have one day when we get to heaven. So here's what Peter's saying. He says, simply on that basis of contrast... I may even suffer for 50 years on this earth, but compared to eternal glory, it's still a little grain of sand on the seashore. And that's what we've got to keep. As I shared last week, 
Whatever negative circumstances you and I go through as a believer in Jesus Christ on this earth, it's the only hell that we will ever know. We must never forget that. And that's what Peter is saying here. And then he goes on to tell us something else very important about these trials and these, these yucky things that we get to go through every once in a while by just being part of the human race and living on the earth. There is a purpose. You see, with God... Nothing is purposeless. Nothing that we go through is purposeless. So whatever suffering we go through, notice that Peter says, such trials will show the proven character of your faith, which is much more valuable than gold. You think, I think gold's valuable? He's saying, no, no, no. The eternal is more valuable than anything temporal. And your faith and my faith is much more valuable than gold. And when those trials and sufferings come, folks, they're not allowed in our life to try to destroy us. You see, Satan wants to bring out our worst when we go through bad times. God wants us to bring out His best when we go through hard times. Let me illustrate it this way. You and I are like a tube of spiritual toothpaste. Pressure brings out what's really on the inside. And, and God, just like an athlete, when an athlete goes through the rigors of training and all of that to be this world-class athlete, they're not sapping themselves of strength. They're actually becoming stronger by all of that hard work that they go through. And, and what... Peter is saying is, you guys are going through some tremendous trials right now, but you got to understand, if you just turn it over to God, and you continue to trust Him through it, you and I are going to be stronger on the other side of that than what we were before we went into it. Because God doesn't want to sap us of our strength. He wants to put more of His strength into us. And sometimes that comes about by those difficult things that we go through. Every person in this room that knows Christ could stand up tonight and give testimony to the fact that there have been times in our life where we went through things that we would have never chosen to go through. We didn't like going through it. But I must say that on this side of it, I can see how God used it in my life to bring me closer to Him, to make me a stronger person. I give you a personal example from my own family. My brother and sister died of a rare blood disease at the ages of four and three. Now, anybody who's ever lost a child knows how difficult it is as a parent to lose a child. My parents went through it twice. And the weird thing is, back in the late 50s, when they died, they didn't even really know as much about this rare blood disease as they do now. They didn't even have a name for it back then. Today, it's called Neiman-Picks disease. And, in fact, I, there's a girl down in Tucson that has this disease. But back in the late 50s, there was only one other family on the earth that they knew of where a siblings had this disease, and they weren't twins, and they lived in China. And so my mom and dad had to go through burying two of their... And, and most of... The time that they spent, those early years, they spent at Bethesda Naval Hospital because my father was in the Navy at the time. Now, just like any situation, my parents knew God at that point in their life. But they could have went real far south. They could have turned bitter against God. They could have, they could have, and, and listen, they were angry. They were normal. You know, but as they worked through it with God and as they continued to cling to God through that very tough time in their life, they never lost sight of the fact of something that God's grace was going to get them through this very, very difficult time. And second, that they knew that there was a purpose for it. I'm trying to make this long story short. Because they didn't really know what triggered it and, and why my mom was continuing to have babies with Neiman Picks disease, the doctor said, don't have any more kids because we don't know what could happen. And my parents both went on their knees for months and really believed after spending time in prayer that God wanted them to try one more time. I'm glad they did. <laughs> 
And I was known in the whole city that I, and I grew up in a little city in Maryland. I was known in the whole city as the prayer baby because it wasn't just our church that was praying for my mom to have a healthy child. It, everybody in the town knew what my parents had went through. And everybody in that town was praying for me. And I, I wasn't even born yet. I had more prayer before I was born. And, you know, <laughs> unbelievable. But here's where the point of the story comes to. My parents turned around and used that terrible loss in their life as a way to minister to other couples. And every time they heard of another couple anywhere near us that had lost a child, they wanted to go and minister to them. And you know what? They understood. There's nothing you can really say at a time like that. But it's unbelievable how when you have somebody just sitting next to you or maybe just hugging on you or weeping with you or whatever who's gone through the same thing that you've went through, there's at least some kind of, of strength that's, that's there. So, something is happening there. As the Jewish people say, they call it a Jewish Shiva. It's where when someone dies in a Jewish family, they just all come to the home and they don't say a thing. They just sit there and they just sit there. And, and the only way that somebody says anything is if the person who lost that loved one wants to talk. If not, they just, they just sit there with them. The presence, their presence there is just enough. And so, I can, and, and, and growing up under that, I was very sensitive to that. And I saw it worked out in my own family's life, how this really does work, folks. How God's grace is sufficient. How He can give us a tranquility of mind no matter what trials we may go through. And how we can be better and stronger. Listen, I thought my parents, you know, were just unbelievable. But from the things that I heard of other people before I even came along, but people tell me, and I saw it for my own self, how much they loved God even after I came along. I've always said that my father was not just my father, he was my best friend. And when I had to bury him 15 years ago because he died of cancer, it's the toughest thing I ever went through. And as a pastor, I preached my father's funeral. People said, again, Jeff, being so close to your dad, how were you able to get up in front of those people and preach your father's funeral? I simply tell them, it wasn't me. It was the grace of God. God's grace can enable us to do things that we could never do on our own. And God wants to give you that grace and that peace. And He wants you and I to have an understanding that no matter what we go through, whether it's persecution under the Roman Empire and the Emperor Nero, or what it is we're going through, that nothing is purposeless. And that God wants to strengthen us and make us stronger and make us trust in Him all the more because our trials will prove the character of our faith. And notice he goes on to say at the end of verse 7, and will bring praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Because the lives that have been impacted by you and I putting our trust in God in those difficult times, people are going to be drawn and attracted to God because of us responding in a positive and biblical way. And then you'll notice... He says, you know, you haven't seen Him, but you love Him. You do not see Him now, but you believe in Him and you rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy because you and I are attaining the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Folks, nothing is purposeless. He talks also in verse 10 and 11 and 12 about privilege, about the fact that we can never forget that we are involved in something that the prophets of the Old Testament tried to look into because God had them prophesy about the coming Messiah and the grace that would be given and all of that. But they didn't understand it. They were still in the Old Testament. They were looking ahead. And they didn't get all that they were writing down. But folks, we're living those days. And we need to remember that privilege that we have, that even the prophets of the Old Testament like Isaiah and Daniel and Jeremiah didn't have that understanding. And then I love this, at the end of verse 12, he says, and folks, you and I are part of the work of God that even the angels of God desire to look into. The angels of God are up there in heaven going, God, this is, this is so cool, this church thing. And, and, and I'm, I'm sure that there's even angels up there in heaven who are saying, and that cornerstone church in Chandler, God, what's that all about? What's going on down there? They are desired because they've never been part of anything like this. 
Because they've never experienced the grace of God. They've never experienced the things that we experience as a Christian who has a personal relationship with Christ because we've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. As Peter says in verse 19, precious blood, blood that has been shed by the unblemished and spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. We've not been redeemed or ransomed with perishable things like silver and gold. No, my friend, but by the precious blood of Jesus. And then one other thing. Notice in verse 11 that we also see this biblical perspective again. And the perspective is found in two words in verse 11. It's the word sufferings and then the word glory. Notice he says, verse 11, they probed these prophets of the Old Testament into what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified beforehand about the sufferings appointed for the Messiah and his subsequent glory. And that is the pattern. That's the perspective. Suffering, then glory. That was true of Jesus. Suffering, then glory. Suffering, then glory. And what Peter is saying is to his audience, I know you're going through tremendous trials and persecution right now being under the Roman Empire. But don't forget, here's the pattern. And it was said in Jesus Christ. Suffering, then glory. Think about it. Jesus didn't have a place to lay His head when He was here on earth. But now He's heir of all things. They were kneeling down, mocking Him as the King of the Jews. Suffering. Glory. Every knee one day will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When He was here on earth suffering, they give Him a crown of thorns. But the Bible says one day He will be crowned the King of kings and Lord of lords. One day when He was here on earth, He hung on a tree. But now the Bible says He is enthroned in glory forever and ever. You see, first suffering, then glory. If you go to a passage of Scripture that's really cool, that's what I call the Trilogy of Psalms in Psalm 22, 23, and 24. And let me just set this for you tonight. We're not going to look at this tonight, but if you get a chance, you want to do a devotional. Psalm 22 is the Psalm of the Cross. It starts out with the words of Jesus from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a, song of, it's a psalm of suffering in the cross. Psalm 23 is the psalm of the crook. The shepherd's crook. It is the shepherd's psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Maybe one of the most familiar passages in all the Bible, except for John 3.16. You see, after Jesus suffered on the cross... He then became our good shepherd and He's shepherding us through our life. And all we need to do is follow our good shepherd and we'll be okay because He's never going to leave us or forsake us. He's always going to provide those green pastures and those still waters, the psalm of the crook. And then Psalm 24 is the psalm of the crown. If you read Psalm 24, it is a psalm that enthrones Jesus Christ as the one who will be King of kings and Lord of lords over the entire universe. That's the pattern. The cross, then the crook even in Christ's life, then the crown. That's what Peter was trying to get his readers to say. Yes, now they're suffering, but remember something. The suffering is never purposeless. And after the suffering, my friends, we have an eternity, eternity of glory just excites me. I'm sorry. One other thing, and then I'll stop again. You'll notice back in verse 7 that he talks about this thing called faith. And I want to just stop there for a minute because this is so important. Because the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please God. And as I've studied the Bible... One of the things that I noticed was this. The only thing that the Bible ever says that Jesus ever marveled at, was amazed at, wondered at, whatever word you want to use there in your translation, was faith or lack of faith. Faith or lack of faith. He marveled. Jesus was amazed. I think of the story of the centurion in Luke chapter 7 where the centurion, this Roman centurion, had this servant of his who was near death. And he sent word to Jesus, Jesus, I know 
That all you have to, you don't even have to come to my house. In fact, he said, you're not, I'm not even worthy to have you come to my house. He, he was showing a real humility there, a genuine humility. He says, but Jesus, I know you are the Son of God and all you have to do is speak the word where you are and my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, the Bible says, Jesus was amazed at that response. I don't know about you, but that sort of makes me, I'd like to amaze Jesus. I'd like to have the kind of faith that Jesus says, Jeff, I, I, that's good. That's good stuff. You Because really, let's face it, folks. What, what better way to show God that we truly love Him than to believe in Him? We want people to believe in us and we're not perfect. We're fallible. We make mistakes, but yet we feel good when people believe in us. Well, how much more does God feel that way who He has Every reason to believe that because he never lets anybody down. We can totally trust him. We should believe in him. And when we do truly believe in him, wow, he likes that. And the Bible says, after the Bible says that Jesus was truly amazed, the Bible said Jesus spoke the word right there. And when the servants went back, the centurion's servant was healed completely and instantaneously. You see, faith asks great things of a great God. Faith asks great things of a great God. I'd like to challenge you with this tonight. What is it? If we're talking about the fact that God is working, God wants us to respond, what is it that God wants you to step out in faith in your life and ask for and ask great things? I mean, don't settle for this. Remember, we serve a God that Ephesians 3.20 says he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. Folks, this church is a testimony of that. I just spent time with Pastor Lynn again yesterday, and one of the things the two of us was talking about, he said, Jeff, i got to tell you, a few years ago, we were sitting here in the history of this church saying, 1,400 people is all we're going to be able to do here. 1,400. We're up to 3,500. And if you looked at this humanly and said, how does this work? How do you get 3,500 people on a church campus that shouldn't hold any more than 1,400 on any given Sunday? Who knows? But God does it. Because again, God can do way more than we... And that's what's so exciting about the future of this church, folks. Because we don't even know what's going to happen. I mean, you know, we, some of us have some real dreams about what could happen here. God's up there going, yeah, you think you know, but you don't really know. And I'm not going to swing this on you. I'm not going to, you know, because you couldn't handle it right now. But it's coming. It's coming. Faith asks great. You see, the reason why I say that is because up to this point in Jesus' ministry, every time Jesus had healed somebody, Jesus was there. So for the centurion to, to acknowledge the fact that Jesus did not need to physically be present to be able to heal was something huge. That was something nobody ever dared ask Jesus to do before. And Jesus liked that. He said, you finally recognize that I don't have to be there to heal somebody. Praise God. I'm bigger than, you know, you put me in this little box and I'm so much bigger than that box. And so Jesus was pleased by that kind of faith because that kind of faith in the centurion was willing to ask great things because he knew that his God was great and had no limitations. And like the Bible says, with God, all things are possible. Do you believe that? Oh, okay, you believe it. Okay, okay. No. I know, it's getting late. Comments, questions? Yes. In the instance of the centurion, does it say anywhere, was the servant a believer, or was it just based on the centurion's just flat-out faith that said, hey, I know you can do it. You can blink an eye and it'll happen. Yeah. Great question, and here's the answer to that. I'm glad you brought that up because that's an important principle you find in the Bible. Jesus healed people when they demonstrated faith, and I believe it wasn't the faith of the man who was sick, it was the faith of the centurion that he responded to. But there are times where Jesus healed people when they didn't demonstrate any faith. It was His grace and His mercy that healed them. They didn't ask for it, they didn't even expect it, but He did it. I think about Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. He couldn't ask for healing. And Mary and Martha certainly didn't have the faith at that point. In John chapter 11, they come up to Jesus and said to Jesus, well, Jesus, if you'd have been here before my brother died, I believe you could have handled that. 
In other words, they had the faith to believe that even if this, if their brother Lazarus was really, really, really sick, maybe just on the brink of death, but not quite over that line, that Jesus could bring him back. But they didn't have the faith to believe that he could actually raise him from the dead. In fact, Martha said, well, I, I believe that you could raise him from the dead at the resurrection of the last day. I, I believe it in a future resurrection, she had faith to believe that. But she didn't believe that Jesus Christ could walk up to that tomb and say, Lazarus, come forth, and there comes her brother four days later. She didn't believe that. And so Jesus did. Because again, why did Jesus do that, John chapter 11 said? So that the Son of Man could be glorified. And so that the people could see this sign. That here again is just an evidence that I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I have power over death. Here I am. Believe in me. Isn't it amazing how many people didn't believe in him after that? And that's why he, he was also amazed at the lack of faith. He would go up to all these Jews and say to them, you have seen all these miracles. You've seen me turn water into wine. You've seen me raise people from the dead. You've seen me uh, restore the sight of the blind. You've seen me restore the hearing of the deaf. You've seen all that and you still don't believe because of the hardness of your heart. And that's why I say at the very beginning of this class every week, that's why 1 Peter 1.13 is such the key verse here because Peter is saying God is at work. But folks, if our heart isn't ready to respond to that working, then it does no good. It just sort of falls on that rocky soil that Jesus talks about in the parables of the soils where He says the Word of God is like this, this, uh, this seed and, and, and God is sowing the seed onto the hearts of people but it's not going to penetrate because that ground is so hard it can't get in there and do any good. And that's why they're, they're having games out there. They're having fun. But we're going to let them go because they let us have this room, okay? So we're going to ignore them. Okay, not complaining. But that's why, like, even... Hey, Cornerstone is a great church where you hear the Word of God. And Pastor Lynn, Pastor Ron, they are tremendous speakers. But folks, it doesn't matter. You can come to this church and you can hear one of their tremendous messages... But unless you and I have a heart that's ready to hear and ready to respond, it doesn't mean a thing. We've got to sort of prepare the soil of our heart so that the Word of God truly takes effect. Alright? Which leads me over to, I know I'm getting ahead of myself here, but leads me over to the end of verse or chapter 1, and I want to start in verse 22. He's talked about keeping our eternal perspective and investing in eternity, and the last things that he talks about in chapter 1 is this. The two things. The two things and the only two things that we as human beings come in contact with on this side of heaven that are eternal. There's only two. The souls of human beings and the Word of God. And what Peter here is saying at the end of chapter 1 is he's reminding us of something. He's saying to his readers, going through tremendous trials, every time you impact another soul in a positive spiritual way, you are impacting eternity. And every time you spend time in the Bible... You're making an eternal investment. So think about that. Think about then what that means for you and I here in the mine on Tuesday night. Here's an opportunity that God gives us every week to basically make an eternal investment. Because we're in the Bible, and Peter's going to tell us here at the very end of chapter 1 that the Bible is eternal. So that any time I spend in this book... It's an eternal investment. And then I'm around other people that I can positively get to know and impact for the kingdom of God or either be encouraged to go out somewhere and make a difference and share what I'm learning, whatever, and to make a positive effect on them. So there it is. And that's why Peter says, notice, you have purified your souls, verse 22 of chapter 1, by obeying the truth in order to show sincere mutual love. So love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Take what God is doing inside your heart and in your life and make a positive spiritual difference. And notice he, he, he says love earnestly. The word literally means to be stretched out. It's a picture of a runner who's leaning forward to cross the tape 
saying that's the kind of love that we need to demonstrate to each other. And when we demonstrate that kind of God-like agape, unconditional love in the lives of other people, we are making a difference in eternity. Because the only two things that we come in contact with on this side of heaven that are eternal are people's souls and the Word of God. Everything else, folks, we're not taken on the other side. It stays here. It stays here. Only people go. Only the Word of God goes. And then he says, verse 23, and don't forget that part of the reason that we can truly love each other earnestly from the pure heart is by allowing the Word of God to change our heart and to mold our heart and to make our heart like God's heart. So he says, you have been born anew, not from perishable, but from imperishable seed through the living and enduring Word of God. Listen, all flesh is like grass. And all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures. And this is the Word that was proclaimed to you. And now we come into chapter 2. And I want to end with these first three verses. This is exactly what I just said earlier about the fact we've got to prepare our hearts properly to receive the Word of God or it's not going to sink in and do anything. Because notice before verse 2 about desiring the Bible in our lives, he says, hey, first of all, you and I have to get rid of some things. we got to get rid of evil and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Because guess why? If I sit down to the Word of God tomorrow morning and have my Bible devotions, and yet I'm all morning to my wife and kids just slandering all of you and just talking negatively and criticizing all of you. And then I sit down and think, now God bless me with your word. Is my heart ready? God would say no. God says, Jeff, get rid of that slander. Get rid of all that envy in your heart. Get rid of all that hypocrisy and deceit and evil. Prepare your heart. So that when I do speak to you, your heart is soft enough to respond. If you've got all this stuff in your life, all this sin that you're harboring, and and then you think you can come to the Bible and get something out of it, God says, forget it. That's why preparation is so important. That's why I tell folks, listen, the best thing you can do for yourself on Tuesday night or Sunday when you come to Cornerstone, if you truly want to hear from God, I want to hear from God, is to even take five minutes and just quiet my heart before God and say, God, I, I've had a rough week. I've messed up maybe a lot. God, I, I, you know, my attitude hasn't been the best. But God, I, I am acknowledging right now that I, I need you. I'm coming to you. I want to hear from you. And I, I, want, to, I want you, by your Spirit, to prepare my heart So that when Pastor Lynn is speaking your word, Pastor Ron, whatever, it's able to penetrate. There's not all this stuff that's keeping the seed of the Word of God from truly penetrating. And that's why people ask me so much. Well, Pastor, I've got this question. How, How can these people who call themselves Christians, how can they come to church week in and week out for years and years and years and they seem to never change? There's the answer. The answer is you and I can come to church. We can open up our Bible. We can read our Bible. We can study our Bible. But if we do not prepare our hearts to receive, it just sort of like, boom, and bounces out. It doesn't penetrate. Got to go through preparation. We've got to get rid of this stuff. And then, verse 2, then you and I need to yearn like newborn infants for pure spiritual milk so that by it we may grow up in our salvation. Again, people ask me this all the time. Pastor, how do I grow as a Christian? What is the secret to growing as a Christian? Our relationship with this book. I mean, it's not hard, folks. It's pretty simple. Our relationship with this book. That's 1 Peter 2, too. I mean, and we all know the illustration that he's using, these newborn infants. I mean, when they're hungry, wah, 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 you know, we know they're hungry. And we got to give them food because they, you know, wouldn't it be great if Christians were just always going around and Pastor Jeff, more Bible, more Bible, I want more Bible. 
You only preach for an hour and a half. I want three hours. Come on, Pastor Jeff. I want more Bible, more Bible. <laughs> oh, man, I set myself up for that one. But, but, here's the cool thing. Then notice he says, we don't stay infants. Once we get that kind of desire that those infants get for that milk and we begin to grow because we build a relationship that's healthy with the Word of God and we have a proper spiritual diet, just like they have a proper physical diet, then we're going to begin to grow. We're going to begin to get spiritually fit. And we're no longer going to be infants, or as we say, baby Christians. We're now going to grow and we're going to mature. And so we're not going to go around going, Pastor Jeff, more word, more Bible. But we might say this, Pastor Jeff, I need a, I need a Bible steak tonight. Come on, I need a Bible steak. I need to sit down. I need to sink my teeth into something because now I'm past the milk. And the Bible says, you know, milk is a good diet for infants. But I don't know about you, but I graduated from milk a while ago. I, I want meat. And that's why the Bible says when we grow up in Christ, we've got to get past the milk. And we've got to get to the meat of the Word. And that's part of what the beauty of the mind is. You see, one of the, one of the cool things about the mind is, and this is the why I advertise it this way, whether you have never studied the Bible at all, or whether you've been studying the Bible for years, I believe that you can come and get something out of it. It's for both. So that, you know, a lot of our folks here at Cornerstone, they're just brand new in the faith. Okay, good. You come to the mind. You don't need to know anything about the Bible before you come here and start learning. God's going to give you things that you can take with you, whether you're an infant or whether you're a mature believer. But the important thing is not so much where you are in your walk with God, but just that you and I keep that kind of burning desire that the infants have for that milk. That's what God says in His Word. Desire that pure milk that you and I might grow. And then verse 3, if you've experienced the Lord's kindness, and He's simply saying it this way. When we begin to feast on the provision of God, we know that there is no provision anywhere that's any better than this. This, this is it. This is the best stuff we could get right here. The Bible. This is it. Nothing any better. Let me give you a Real personal, bad illustration. Every once in a while, I'm from back east, I dream of a Coney Island hot dog. I mean the one where the guy lines it up on his arm and he slathers the mustard and the onions and the, the chili sauce on it. I'm telling you, I've had other hot dogs. But there ain't no hot dog on earth like that Coney Island hot dog that I get in my hometown. Nothing like it. Nothing like it. So what, so what I'm saying is, once I tasted that, every other hot dog's like, yeah, it's okay, but it's not. And that's what he's saying in verse 3. He's saying, once we really, truly taste this wonderful meal, this banquet that God has prepared for us called the Bible, we won't go back to anything else. Because everything else is going to be, that's eh, okay, but it's not the Bible. The Bible's the best. You can't beat the Bible. And that's what he's saying in verse 3. When you and I taste, when you and I experience the wonderful food that God has for us spiritually, we'll never go back to anything else. All right, folks, you've been great. You have been so patient. More Bible next Tuesday night? All right. All right. 120 people here tonight. Amen. That's great. Now, next week... This room will probably be, be able to hold about 150 to 175. So we've got to get more people to come. Because we've got to get them to taste this so that they won't be chewing on other stuff. You know, this is the stuff that they need to be chewing on. All right, let's close in prayer. I know some of you wanted to come up and talk to me after class, and I'll be glad to hang around for a few minutes after that. Anything that I, you need to say. By the way, for those of you that don't know, weren't here last week, this is my wife, Lisa. Her food's good, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And again, I just want to thank Ron and Mike for all that they've done. And thank you all also for bringing refreshments. 
Don't forget to get some on your way in and out. Every week, we, if you can, we just like a couple people just to come, bring some finger food. We want to leave the drinks to the cafe because they make money uh, to send kids to camp and stuff. So we, want to, we don't want to bring everything. But, you know, some of you can still get snacks and stuff out there and drinks out there. But we just wanted to have some snacky stuff and whatever. And, again, get on the web. Get on our email. You know, if you have any questions, be glad to answer them for you throughout the week or whatever, but so glad you guys are here. Let's close in prayer and I'll let you go. Got to pick up your kids, those of you that are here for, with them. Father, again, thank you. Thank you so much for, Lord, your great provision of your word. Father, there truly is nothing like it on this earth. God, Solomon said, there's no end to the writing of books and books and books and more books, but Father, there's no book like the Bible. And that's why... The Bible is still the number one bestseller of any book out there. Because when it really comes down to it, Lord, that's what people are searching for. They can read other books, but there's nothing like the book of books, the Bible. And thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have every Tuesday night to come in and crack this Bible open and just dive into it in the mind and dig deep and find things, Lord, that can encourage our hearts and lift us up and refresh us and keep us going for another week. Father, again, thank you for each and every person here tonight. May we be an encouragement. And even this week, Lord, give us people that we can love earnestly and just reflect the love of Christ to them. And remember, Father, that only two things we come in contact with on this side of heaven are eternal, the souls of men and the Word of God. Father, help us to invest in eternity this coming week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, for being here. You're wonderful. Super.